0: Welcome to the CSB-SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zaire and Francie Ounich. Welcome to episode seven of the CSB-SCB podcast. With us today is Dr. Salvatore Federico from the University of Calgary. Dr. Federico is a long-standing member of the CSB. In fact, last year, he retired from the executive after 10 years of service, with two of those as the society's president. From Italy originally, Sicily, to be more precise, and if you can imagine the Italian boot, Sicily is the J-Island just off the tip of that boot. Dr. Federico received his laureate in mechanical engineering from the University of Catania. He then went on to complete his PhD degree in structural mechanics at the University of Catania followed by a postdoctoral fellowship in Calgary, which was completed in 2007. Today, 14 years later, Dr. Federico is a professor in the Department of Mechanical and Manufacturing Engineering and the Centre of Bioengineering Research and Education, both of which are a part of the Schulich School of Engineering at the University of Calgary. He's also an adjunct professor at the Human Performance Lab in the Faculty of Kinesiology and recently added a bachelor's degree in Greek and Roman studies to his list of accomplishments. So, Dr. Federico, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Jackie and Francie.
2: As we speak today, we are in the middle of reading week here at the UFC, which means no lectures for you until next week. But what are you teaching this term? Or if you're not teaching, which are some of the typical classes of yours?
1: Okay, I'm actually teaching my typical classes for the fall. I'm doing uh, the Biomechanics of Movement course and the Continuum Mechanics graduate course. So those are my typical teaching assignments for the fall.
2: The more we learn, the more we all realize how little we know or how much we do not know. Don't tell me. (laughs) And you're an established professor, but uh, one can still find you in classrooms other than your own. So I remember that you and I were in one of my grad classes together. Exactly. As mentioned before, you recently earned that additional undergraduate degree in Greek and Roman studies. Are you currently taking or auditing any other classes?
1: Yeah, another occasion that was a few years ago, and I was attending Dr. Herzog's course on muscle. So after having worked with Walter for so long, I decided it was about time that I finally took the course. And so I attended the muscle mechanics course. I think the official name is advanced uh, biomechanics. And and yes, I completed my bachelor's in uh, Greek and Roman studies. That was a, a thing that I always wanted to do. I took Latin in high school, but I didn't take Greek. And so, because I chose the scientific stream for high school, so I did a lot of maths and physics, but not Greek. And so I always had this thing that I wanted to learn a little bit of classical Greek. So I started with a few courses in classical Greek. And then I really liked it, and I asked, so how many exams do I have to do to get a degree? Oh, you have a PhD, so you only take 20. Really? (laughs) And so I did my 20 exam, 21 in fact, and I graduated last June. So this was also to emulate my other idol, other than Walter, is uh, Professor Epstein, because Marcelo also has a degree. Well, he got his degree many years ago in Greek and Roman studies, so that was also spirit of emulation. Uh, No, I'm not auditing any class uh, at the moment, Otherwise, I guess my wife may throw me out and she would be also right. But I am, in fact, picking up one thing that I always wanted to do for a long time. I stopped pretending to play the guitar and I actually started to study seriously guitar. So, yeah, that's the, that's the one thing I'm doing in this period.
2: That is perfect, because we were going to ask about that too. In the preparation for this interview today, we... Try to get some information about you from different sources. Okay. And uh, <laughs> one of your former grad students may have told us about your guitar lessons and also that you used to play in a band back in Italy.
1: Yes, that was a long time ago. And in fact, it was when I still had a lot of hair. So, in one of the HPL seminars, say, I, I mentioned that I divide time in when I still had hair and when I no longer had hair. That's my uh, AC and BC, right? So, so practically, I, I studied piano when I was in in high school. I started, I, I'd always played by ear, and then I studied formally very late. And I was a decent keyboard player, and I was the singer of the band. And occasionally, I would play the rhythm guitars. Uh, my brother studied uh, classical guitar, and he's the real guitarist in the family. And a couple of years ago, he started to study with a friend of ours who took music as a profession and became a fantastic teacher because my brother wanted to improve his technique. And so, well, after I was teaching classes online, I said, well, why can't I learn something online? (laughs) And so I called this friend and I said, Patrick, you know, I'd I'd like to study with you. He was super happy. And so I started to study with him. It's been now eight months and it's been fantastic. Lots of fun. One of the best things I've ever done. Well, and the best gift I got from the pandemic. Well, the only, but it was a very good one.
2: That's amazing. You're multi-talented.
1: No, no. I, I, I like to do a lot of things. And in fact, I do a lot of things very badly. Each thing I don't do very well, but you know, I like to do a lot of things.
2: Well, then to move on to something that I'm sure you do really well. As reflected in the courses you teach, your main areas of research are continuum mechanics and soft tissue biomechanics. So yes. naturally, we want to talk about that today with you. On one university website with information about you for potential students it says continuum mechanics the mother of solid mechanics and fluid mechanics studies matter at an observation scale much larger than the atomic scale and so for one i guess that suggests that it's really an important topic and that it is time that we talk about it but it also appeared to me that it is important in particular that the scale we're looking at is definitely not the atomic scale and so When I was doing a quick online search to get a rough idea of what we're talking about today, one of the concepts that did pop up in this context are that you would look at material as a continuous mass and ignoring the fact that matter is really made up of discrete particles or atoms. And then first I thought, but isn't that what all of us do, sort of, every day? Until I came to your list of publications and you published papers with titles like consistent numerical implementation of hyperelastic constitutive models, or strain-mediated propagation of magnetic domain walls in cubic magnetostrictive materials. And that made me realize that it's probably really not exactly what all of us do on a daily (laughs) basis. (laughs) So the first bigger question for you today is what is continuum mechanics, or what are some basic concepts that the general biomechanics audience should know about?
1: Okay, so continuum mechanics uh, gets the name continuum from the fact that although matter is in fact discrete and in every chunk of matter that I take, there will be a finite number of atoms. We are looking at so many atoms at the same time that we can pretend to neglect the existence of the atoms altogether. And so we can always think that between any two points of our chunk of matter, There will always be a point in between. And so once we have that point in between, we take that point in between and one of the other two. And in the middle, there will be always another one. Now, of course, this is not true because at some point you will get to one atom and the next atom. And in the middle, there is this cloud of electrons that do their things. But we never look at so few atoms that you have that problem. So the advantage of not looking at the atoms and pretending that matter is continuous is that you can use the tools of what we broadly call calculus. So practically, you can do derivatives and you can do integrals. For which, uh, well, for derivatives, you definitely need continuity. So you need to be able to pass continuously from a point to the other, which if you have a discrete system, you cannot do. You can do discrete derivatives. But when you have to build your theory, you want to be able to do derivatives, right? So you want to be able to establish differential equations that... Describe the behavior of the system. And so we need continuous functions of something, and uh, oh well, of space coordinates in this case. Although we don't really need continuity to do integrals, it's always very handy to have continuous functions when you want to do integrals. So, in fact, what happens in continuum mechanics is that you look at a chunk of matter and then you want to see what comes in, what comes out for any physical quantity of interest. For example, you start with mass, then you look at linear momentum. You look at angular momentum and you look at energy. So that's the bare minimum. And so once you have that theory built, then you realize, beautiful, I have fantastic, a set of beautiful, terribly nonlinear and very complicated differential equations. And uh, worst thing, I have too many variables and too few equations. And so at that point, you need to introduce additional equations. And those additional equations are those that describe the material behavior. So only at that point, and I always tell my students, only in chapter six, because it happens that in the in the notes that I use for my course is chapter six, but only in chapter six do we distinguish between fluids and solids. Because the distinction only comes up when you have to choose the constitutive behavior, so the material response to external agents. But everything that comes before that is absolutely identical and it's completely independent of the nature of the material. And that is a thing that has always fascinated me. And in fact, it's exactly the opposite that is normally done in every course of studies, including my own. So when I was in second year, we took a course in Italy, we take a course that is called Rational Mechanics. And in fact, the name is meccanica razionale. And rational mechanics is the translation into English of meccanica razionale, to be precise, because this has been a very traditional course that has been taught in Italy for a very long time. In that course, for the first time, we took a little bit of continuum mechanics. So my professor taught us a little bit of the general things of continuum mechanics, and he never mentioned solids or fluids because he was doing some kinematics. And kinematics has nothing to do with the with what type of material you have. It, kinematics is the same. It doesn't really matter. But then, when I was in third year and I started to take the solid mechanics course and the fluid mechanics course, they were taught in a completely independent way. And it was fairly clear that they were talking about the same things, but they never talked to each other. (laughs) In fact, I am very happy that I have a few colleagues with whom I can actually speak from fluid mechanics. So uh, here in Calgary, we are fairly open-minded. And so we have uh, several colleagues they do fluid mechanics and solid mechanics, and we co- collaborate and we do things together. I realized that that's not very common, because traditionally there has been this very sharp separation between the two, which now, in this century, uh, really doesn't, doesn't make any sense. I I can understand, you know, when the theories were being established, you know, people started from an interest in solids or in fluids, and so they were developing different theories. And then at some point, as as soon as you realize that, okay, we are talking about the same thing, you can no longer do it separately, but that's what happens. That's what our students get in second year and third year, unless they take courses with me, in which case (laughs) I I always emphasize that, in fact, we're doing the same things. So in that sense, uh, I write in that website that it's the mother of solids and fluids. Because everything that comes before, to me, that's continuum mechanics, then then as soon as I specify what type of material I have, then I choose if I'm doing sorts of fluids.
0: A relevant problem that continuum mechanics addresses in biological structures like tendons, muscle components, or cartilage is yes. the transmission of loads within or between structures, particularly through the mechanism of deformation. An ideal material model, such as elasticity, viscoelasticity, which aligns with the solid and fluid components that you were just discussing, and plasticity, have been useful for predicting and evaluating the material responses. But often, these models are restricted to a small number of parameters that are typically experimentally determined. And so what are some common assumptions that are typically made to manage the potentially overwhelming complexity of these mathematical problems?
1: I don't remember whose quote this is, but I think it was a physicist who said, well, give me three parameters and I will model you an elephant. Give me four and I will make the trunk sway. So I can add as many parameters as I want in a model. I can make a very complex model, mathematically beautiful and very appealing. And then I go to my colleague who is, who is an experimentalist and say, OK, we need to determine this parameter. And the, the colleague will laugh at me because there is only a limited number of, of experiments that I can do to determine these properties. So one has to make a balance between what's reasonable to include and what's reasonable to experimentally determine. One of the examples that I have is, you mentioned that paper on magnetostriction. Before that paper, there was another one that we wrote, and that was on the, on the mathematical structure of magnetostriction, which is the determined by a fourth-order tensor, which a lot of people neglect because people don't like tensors for for some reason, but it's based on a fourth-order tensor, which is even worse than a second-order tensor-like stress. And depending on the symmetry of the material, of the crystal that you're studying, you may have up to 36 constants. Yeah, good luck, I mean, (laughs) evaluating that. So if you have a monoclinic, sorry, a triclinic crystal, which has no symmetry whatsoever, and there are crystals that are triclinic, well, they will have technically 36 constants. How do you determine those? There's no way you can do 36 independent experiments to determine those. So that's why for applications, we choose materials that are much simpler that only need a few constants. And so those are determinable experimentally. Same thing goes with biological materials. The models do what they can. So very often we assume, say, transverse isotropy. So we have one direction that is a preferential direction And that's typically the main direction of the collagen fibers in a biological material. And so transverse isotropy is not too bad because there are not too many material parameters. And yet, very often, we use mutilated models in which we eliminate parameters just because we are not able to determine them experimentally. So we make ourselves content with the partial description because in the end, it pretty much does the job, although it's not exactly what it should be. I know cases in which there is um, there are parameters that are excluded on the outset. And I've been excluding this particular parameter on the outset forever. And I know that it gives problems, but what do we do?
0: I'm happy that you brought up tensors because it fits really nicely into our next question, which tensors are an important mathematical tool that are used for examining the effects that a stress can have on a material. And so compared to a vector, which is used to describe, for example, the magnitude and a direction of a force, can you explain the utility of a tensor for quantifying, for example, the stress strain response in a tissue or material?
1: Beautiful. This is a fantastic question, which allows me to also remark how important it would be for a lot of people that do science to take a little bit of Latin. And in fact, there is, uh, at the University of Calgary, we have Marcelo, uh, Professor Epstein, who teaches the Latin of science one and the Latin of science two, by the way. So, tensor is a word that was made up. It's a Latin word, but it's a made up word because the tense part comes from tensio, which in Latin is tension, which means stress. In fact, in Italian, we we still say tension uh, or sforzo to say stress and the OR ending is the same OR of vector. And so practically is an object that is kind, similar to a vector, but not quite a vector. In fact, in the modern treatment that we use, a second order tensor like stress is a linear map. So it's something that takes a normal vector to a surface. So if I take a piece of material, I cut it, because I want to know what the internal forces are. So when I do a cut through the material, and I separate it into two parts. On each side, I will have to replace the missing side with forces per unit area from on the separation surface. Now, on that separation surface, there will be a normal vector, a unit vector orthogonal to the surface. And so the stress is that linear map that takes the normal vector and gives me the force per unit area. So in this sense, tensors have to do with vectors, but they are more than vectors. In a broader way, well, Vectors are also tensors. They are tensors of order one because they only have, we say that we have, they have one leg. A second order tensor has two legs. And a scalar is also a tensor, by the way, order zero. It has no legs. And a fourth order tensor, like I mentioned before, that has four legs. So there are all these uh, interesting animals with a funny number of, of legs that describe different objects and different material behaviors as well. For example, one thing that is used a lot. Also in biomechanics, although not directly, it's the piezoelectric effect. We use piezoelectric sensors and actuators all the time in biomechanics, right? So piezoelectricity is described by a third order tensor because it has to relate a first-order tensor, which is, for example, the electric field, with a second order tensor, which is the stress. And so we need a we need something that relates the two, and that will be a third order tensor. So Yeah, if you ask me, tensors are the most important thing in life. Yes, (laughs) that can be (laughs) (laughs) opinable.
0: Another important concept that you brought up was this concept of directional uniformity or directional dependence of a material response. And so can you explain how isotropic, transverse isotropic, or anisotropic responses are important for what you do and, I guess, material mechanics more broadly? And do you have an example of a biological tissue that is typically classified as each of these? Yes.
1: The dependence on direction, that is a local property. So at each point in your body you need to determine what type of material symmetry you have. Those are called symmetries. A symmetry is anything that remains invariant under a certain class of transformations. So let's translate that into English. If I have a material such that at one point If I apply any rotation I like, the material continues to behave exactly in the same way, and the material response is exactly the same, I will call that material isotropic. Let me tell you more. If I apply any linear transformation, not necessarily rotation, but any linear transformation that has determinant equal to 1, which means does not change the volume, that material is called the fluid. So actually, the way to distinguish solids from fluids is looking at the material symmetry. Because in a fluid, you take your bottle of water, you shake it, you do whatever you want, you're doing a transformation at constant volume. The behavior will not change. The content of the bottle is the same before and after you shake it. That's exactly because you apply the transformation at constant volume. All the matter in the bottle is rearranged and the, the material particles, have rota- the points have rotated, have been distorted, whatever you want, but nothing is going to happen. It's going to behave exactly the same way. So... If those transformations are all the possible transformations are constant volume, fluid. Otherwise, if they are a subgroup, we say, of rotations, then that's, that's going to be a solid. So any rotation, we call it isotropic. Rotations only about one fixed axis, that's transversal isotropic. Think of a tendon. A tendon is a beautiful example in biomechanics because it has fibers that are pretty much aligned in one direction. If you make a rotation about... The direction of the fibers, nothing will have changed. What happens in the transverse plane, which is the plane orthogonal to the direction of the fibers, the transverse plane will see no difference because we have rotated about the fibers. So that's a beautiful example of transversal isotropic material. And then we have stricter classes of rotations that we can apply without changing the material behavior, and those make less, let's say, less noble symmetries for materials. Typically in biomechanics, And in a lot of engineering analysis, we we really work with isotropy, transverse isotropy, and orthotropy. So orthotropy means we have three axes of symmetry. So we can do reflections about the three axes, but that's it. If we make any other rotation, then the material properties change. When we go to material science, then we are often working with crystals. And so we need to look at all the other symmetries, which are a lot. There are 32 classes uh, of crystals, and those are described beautifully by group theory. I, I worked a little bit on this type of things, and it's it, it's really amazing how you can predict the existence of crystals just merely by by group theory. That's what Dirac did. Was looking at the crystals. Well, well this we haven't found it, but probably it exists because <laughs> it must exist because of it's predicted by the theory. And that.
0: So moving on to some of your own work and interests in the field of continuum mechanics, looking at the titles of your theses, we can see that you've been studying cartilage since your first university degree, which is just over 20 years ago now. And so cartilage is not the first thing that comes to mind in the context of soft tissue. So as a more general question to get us started, what characteristics or parameters make a material and in quotation soft from an engineer or material scientist's perspective?
1: beautiful question so a soft tissue is a tissue is soft that that's the definition that i feel i can give you if it can attain large displacements before it breaks so bone is definitely not soft because if you if you take a, even a long bone like a femur and you have displacements that are comparable with the cross section of the bone for example, take a diameter of the cross-section. You want to say that you fix it at one end and then that you want to bend it and see, see where it goes. You want to do a displacement that is as big as one diameter. Well, that will break a lot before. It will never attain large displacements. It will break before. Well, tooth, of course, is exactly the same, if not stiffer. Instead, for, for soft tissues, you can take a piece of artery, and deform it as much as you want. Well, not, not as much as you want, but you can bend it, for example, as much as you want. It will not break. It will just not break. You need to stretch it a lot before it breaks. Same thing with a layer of cartilage. Imagine to cut this cartilage off the bone. You have this little layer of cartilage and you can flex it almost as much as you want and it will not break. So that's the idea. You can attain large displacements without going to failure. So that, to me, is the distinction. Since you can attain large displacements, you need a large displacement analysis, which is what I, what I do for a living.
0: So cartilage, probably like most other tissues in our body, we really only notice or think about it when it's damaged or it's not functioning anymore, and it's causing us a lot of pain or dysfunction. Yes. And so aside from the clinical significance of cartilage disorders and damage, to you personally, what's most compelling or interesting about cartilage versus other soft collagenous tissues?
1: That's a very good question. And in fact, well, the way in which I was introduced to cartilage mechanics was very fortuitous, if you like. So uh, when I was a fifth-year student in Catania, my my supervisor, Guido La Rosa, was in contact with Walter. And so there was this agreement that one student from uh, Guido's group would go to to Walter's group, and that was me. So Walter proposed two topics. One was muscle mechanics, of course, and the other was cartilage mechanics, also, of course, because it's the second topic in Walter's group. So I looked at the papers, and the ones on muscles look Oh, muscle looked very interesting, and the ones on cartilage look a lot of continuum mechanics. I said, "Well, <laughs> I like this stuff. I would like to actually learn more about this because I was interested in the in the modeling part, and that was more familiar to me because I had a fair exposure to at least small displacement analysis, and and I was interested in studying large displacement analysis. And so I chose cartilage. That's historically how <laughs> how I I ended up doing cartilage mechanics. Uh, I don't know if there is a, a particularly compelling uh, reason one that i think i can think of is that cartilage cannot be repaired or at least cannot be repaired easily and we do not know how to repair it a torn ligament can be repaired and if the surgeon is really good you can go back to pretty much 100% of what you were before the failure of your ligament and do pretty much anything you were doing before with damaged cartilage your joint becomes arthritic and then uh, it's a lot of pain literally a lot of pain so the compelling reason for studying cartilage to me, is that it's a tissue that naturally doesn't repair. And so if we, where I include myself in the in the club of people that do, do cartilage, but if we, on the way, in 30, 40 years, find a way to scan the surface of a joint, of a damaged joint, reconstruct cartilage, and install new cartilage that has been engineered by someone that cannot do these things, I cannot do these things, no way, then that would solve the problem of osteoarthritis once and for all. No more arthroplasty, uh, no more pain, and you can recover your joint pretty much as it was before. Now, where does all the continuum mechanics and all uh, fit in, in in the picture? Well, in order to be able to do to do that, we need to be able to model healthy cartilage correctly, uh, capture the most important features of healthy cartilage, so that we can reproduce. Someday we, someone else, not me for sure, but someone else will be able to reproduce tissue-engineered cartilage that is as close as possible to the original one. For example, other things I've been doing in the past, more than I do now, were growth and remodeling theories. If we can direct the development of a tissue-engineered cartilage towards the arrangement of collagen, arrangement of cells of real cartilage, then that would help. And so we need this type of modeling as well for growth and remodeling phenomena. So that, that's why I find that cartilage is particularly important. Not because tendons or ligaments are not speaking still of of um, musculoskeletal tissues, but because cartilage doesn't repair. Ligaments and tendons, we are pretty good at those. But with cartilage, we are really we are really at a loss. We we cannot do much. The
2: title of the thesis for your laurea is biomechanical analysis of articular cartilage in joint contact. And then that of your PhD thesis was microstructural modeling of articular cartilage. And then your most recent paper, cartilage-related paper, published earlier this year is titled Collagen Fibers Determine the Crack Morphology in Articular Cartilage. Can you walk us through how the way you look at or work with cartilage changed over the years?
1: So initially, the first problem I was given, I was proposed by uh, Walter, was this contact problem. So the idea was to try to determine what the most realistic boundary conditions were for the fluid exudation through the surface. So I tried a completely sealed surface, a partially permeable surface, a variable permeability surface. That was the first study that I did. There were, after that, a few other studies on contact mechanics. But then I moved away and I started to be more interested in microstructure modeling. So taking the presence of the collagen fibers and initially also of the cells. And so I was building these composite material models of cartilage initially for the linear elastic properties. And then I moved on to the nonlinear properties and to permeability Then with one of my PhD students also on diffusivity. So to me, the, the most fun part of my research in cartilage has been the microstructure modeling because it's relatively easy to measure the properties of the individual constituents of, of a tissue, for example, cartilage, in vitro. And then, once you know their arrangement and their volumetric fraction, so how much volume is occupied by collagen fibers, how much is occupied by protoglycans and water, then you can attempt to determine the overall properties of the tissue starting from those of the constituents. And this has been fairly uh, successful. When I was a postdoc with Walter, we developed this model for uh, permeability. It then has been used by a lot of people. Now, now, now it's fairly uh, used, and it has probably also inspired other models, and, uh, and that's that's fantastic. This has evolved in, in time. We did improvements of many sorts. With, uh, with my colleague Alfio Grillo in uh, at the Polytechnic of Torino, we did large deformation version of that. So then now the permeability model works also in large deformations. We did further improvements even of that. And then with my PhD student, we also implemented diffusivity for cartilage. So the model as of today is able to predict fairly well the diffusivity of spherical molecules. We don't do very well with long molecules because long molecules can reptate like snakes through the matrix of cartilage through the proteoglycans, And so that makes it very difficult to model their diffusivity. This has been more or less the path in using this microstructural approach to model several physical and mechanical properties of, of cartilage. The last work that you mentioned is the last work on cartilage on which I collaborated, and that was mainly Nguan Mu that did work. one was a was postdoctor with, uh, with Walter and also with myself, and then now he's in Coopio with uh, Rami Coronan and uh, doing another postdoc with Marie Curie. So we worked together on the numerical implementation of that crack model on, on cartilage. That was a lot of fun. We also had viscoelastic fibers, which personally had never done. So we rewrote the whole numerical implementation of the model. We added a few things that we normally do in Calgary, but they used not to do in Quapu, and now they do. <laughs> so now we have a. That was a very nice work of Enquán. Enquán did a fantastic job, also with the, the experimental part. There was a surprisingly good match of the simulated crack shape and crack propagation with the not quite the propagation sorry but the how the two surfaces of the crack interact with each other once the tissue is cracked and then you deform it will the surfaces go back together to a certain extent and it was very similar to what was observed in experiments that was very cute
2: just to get an idea of the scale that you work on when you say microstructure and small and large molecules, can you give us some numbers of, like, what... Yes. are probably not talking oh. centimeters, even, so...
1: No, no. Even a cartilage sample doesn't go to centimeters. A cartilage sample normally <laughs> is in the millimeters. So, we're talking nanometers. If you look at the average distance between two glycosaminoglycans, it's a few nanometers. For the spacing between two collagen fibers, it's a few tens of nanometers. That's small. In Very fact, small. <laughs> that is uh, almost at the level in which you don't do continuum mechanics anymore. But what we do essentially is we take that geometry, we study a small element of volume with, for example, one collagen fibre surrounded by, let's say, a jacket of protoglycans with water. We study what happens in that representative element of volume, is called, and then we upscale. And then we do an average, a directional average to into account what happens with the orientation of the collagen. And then we upscale to the tissue level. So we get homogenized properties for the tissue. So in the end, we use a continuum model. So we start with something that is multi-phasic. So it has a phase of collagen, a phase of protoglycans, and a phase of water. And then we end up with a classical biphasic with a solid and a and fluid uh, after we upscale. Yeah, that's That's the idea. It's small things that then are upscaled to larger scales, yes.
2: And you mentioned permeability and diffusivity. Can you explain what the difference is? Because I'm sure. not sure I yeah. know. Sure, yeah.
1: Permeability permeability has to do with the, how easily a fluid flows through a porous medium. Imagine a sponge, pretty much cartilage really is a sponge with, a, with fibers. There are these voids that are all interconnected and the fluid can flow through the voids that is uh, also a topic that is particularly hot in Alberta or at least it was i don't know what's going on now because of oil research of course that is also uh, there is a fluid that is permeating a porous solid that's exactly the same type of approach so permeability measures how easily the fluid can flow through the porous uh, skeleton of the solid uh, whereas diffusivity tells you how easily a molecule can move within typically fluid but sometimes also solid So for us in in cartilage research, we are interested in how molecules which are all the nutrients, for example, that the cells need, all the toxins that the the cells get rid of, they are transported away or transported into the cells through diffusivity, essentially, because cartilage is avascular, so there is no vascularization of any sort, so there is no way to bring nutrients to the cells other than the motion of the fluid and the diffusion of the nutrients so, when you have a porous system, that becomes particularly interesting because if the system is more permeable, then also diffusivity is enhanced because there is, uh, there is not only diffusivity through the fluid, but also the fluid is moving. So, there are the, the two things are interconnected, and that's what we started in. Uh,
2: One completely different topic that came up briefly in our last episode is teaching. And interestingly, you have been awarded three teaching awards here in, in Calgary which is very exciting and tells us that we probably should sit in some of your classes someday.
1: You, you may want to retract that person. <laughs>
2: I'll, I'll try and then, then we'll bring you back to another episode. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say has the way you teach changed over the years of being a professor?
1: It has. It has changed a lot. Initially, I was given for granted that people knew, the students here knew the same things that I knew when I was a student. And that was not the case because the way in which things are conveyed is very different between uh, Europe and North America. So, in Europe, the philosophy seems to favor a deductive approach, whereas in North America, I see it more inductive. And so, I had to adjust myself to this. Not that I abandoned deductive, the deductive approach, but I, I had to recalibrate in a lot of ways the way in which I convey concepts. One thing that Uh, Has changed a lot through the years is that I almost entirely abandoned textbooks in favor of my own notes. So, this is extremely time consuming, extremely time consuming, but it is very rewarding. And I I normally see that the students appreciate that a lot because they know exactly what I fast on, they know exactly what I don't really fast on, and they know exactly what I think is important that they learn. And so, they always have a reference. In whatever i say in class so in class is not that of course i don't replicate what i exactly what i write in the notes I, I follow the notes so that the students can then follow when they study at home i give additional examples i give additional thoughts and and so on but then they always have a reference and i i'm also extremely picky and annoying and so my notes are very book-like so i spend a lot of time to make them look good I prepare nice figures and prepare examples and and I take a lot of feedback from the students. The students have been fantastic in, in helping me clean up mistypings here and there, clean up also points that were unclear. They were maybe clear to me, and then I said, uh, no, that's not clear because the students are at a point here. Sometimes there were mistakes that I, not, not quite mistypings, but things that I I just did wrong because I made a mistake somewhere in the calculations for an example or something, and, and they found that the, the example was not right. This approach also puts the students how can I say, I think that the students like to have these uh, responsibility for also checking what I say. I always tell them not to trust me. I always tell them that they shouldn't trust anyone, absolutely anyone, including me, because uh, learning is not a matter of blindly trusting the instructor. The instructor may be wrong. I had instructors that at some point told me something not quite right or not quite correct or not quite explained in the right way. And I Generally, never really trusted a lot of people. I don't really trust myself. So I I tell the students, if I don't trust myself, you shouldn't either. So that gives them that sense of responsibility in checking even what the instructor says. And I almost never give them any concept without proof. Okay, now I can show that we can do this thing. And do you trust me, right? And they say, yes, okay, wrong. (laughs) You don't (laughs) trust me. Now I will prove you. After which, if the proof is convincing for you, then you can trust me. I tend to do that, particularly for my courses that are particularly heavy from the mathematical point of view. Things cannot be given as, as, cooking, recipe, as cooking recipes, otherwise they become very arid and very disconnected from reality. I, I always also tell the students, I, I'm not going to teach you how to pass the exam. But if you learn a little bit of, now replace the name of the course, right? Solid mechanics or biomechanics or continuum mechanics, you're going to pass the exam. There's no question. So it becomes a consequential thing of having understood the main concepts. That's what I try to do. And yes, it is difficult to teach these things. It is very difficult and it takes a lot of iterations to be able to find a good way to convey things. And it it took me several iterations before I got more or less satisfied with the way I currently teach.
2: You bring up that what you do is really yeah, math heavy and it, it's not easy yes. math that you do so also thinking yes. about it from the other side from a student's perspective do you maybe have any tricks for students who to whom maybe math doesn't come that easily for how to tackle tricky problems
1: yes one thing that i always suggest to students is to take their favorite or least favorite depending a colleague and prove things to each other so i will show you this property i will prove you this theorem and he will prove that to me so can you explain it in a lot of cases i realized my teaching for example has improved enormously my knowledge of a lot of things because i want to teach properly and i want to explain things properly and that forced me to study them properly because one thing is to know how to do something and one thing is to teach it to someone that has never heard of it they are two completely separated problems and so I always encourage the students to study in at least in pairs, to study in groups. That's what I did when I was a student. Uh, when I was in Messina, for example, I had my friend Santino. And so Santino and I would prove theorems to each other. In Catania, I had Alfio, whom I mentioned before that is now in Torino. And so we would prove theorems to each other. We would study things together. And we, got, we both got a lot better at also explaining things because once you're able to explain it satisfactorily, you know it, you really know it. And then applying it is a very mechanical thing. And in fact, I show the students once you know your theory, doing a problem is a joke. And and I show them, look, if you know if you know the main hypothesis that you need to keep in in mind, if you know the main methods, then all the problems at some point, even problems that look very difficult, or all different uh, from each other. No, they are all they're all the same. And they realize that uh, a lot of problems all start to look the same once the theory is consolidated in their minds. And
2: lastly, giving a conference presentation, for example, is also some might be considered as a form of teaching, but then you don't have the time to go through these iterations that you mentioned and get feedback from the students and over the years develop the outline. So do you have any tips for maybe how to do the teaching in that setting?
1: Yes. So in a conference presentation, it all depends on the type of presentation. The standard presentation, you have 10 minutes. When you're really lucky, like the... At the last CSB, you have 12 minutes. So you can really cover one topic. Say you are a PhD student and you're presenting pretty much your PhD thesis because in a few months, then you will defend and you have everything pretty much ready. You want to talk about the PhD thesis. Of course, you can speak for hours and you will be unstoppable for hours. You are probably going to be among the people that know the most about that topic in that room, right? But you can only present one aspect. In 10 minutes, and that this is a suggestion that I got many years ago from Walter. When you have 10 minutes, you cannot do too much. So you can present one topic, give enough detail on the background and on the methodology, so that people know why you are doing that. That's why you you show the background, you give a motivation for what you do, you explain the main features of how you do in a certain way, and then you show a few significant results. For example, for the type of things that I do, I cannot go there and teach a course on tensor analysis in three minutes right So that will all depend on the audience. Say I am uh, I'm presenting for the Society of Natural Philosophy which is a very small society that is created was created by crazy mathematical physicists that do that did continuum mechanics and all the people that go there do more or less the things that I do and so we all understand each other. I don't need to do that. you know I can start to talk about the craziest things and most of the audience will follow what I'm talking about. So if I go to the CSB conference where people do biomechanics and maybe one or two people or three people in the audience will do tissue mechanics and will have a certain level of expertise in continuum mechanics, I have to be a lot more careful and talk in and just explain things in a different way. I will have to use less equations, for example. When I I give a talk at the Human Performance Lab, depending on the type of talk, sometimes I, I, I talk about one piece of research and then I give a little bit of mathematical background in that case. But the last presentation I gave was a career type of thing, so in which I explained what I did in, since I was born as a researcher. and uh, there were like five equations in, in a 40 minute talk because that was not the, was not the context and was not the audience to do anything different. It has to be calibrated with audience and context really. That takes a little bit of experience. I was. At the beginning, I did a couple of uh, very spectacular fails in calibrating my lectures. <laughs> so it takes a little bit of experience. That's why it's always good to present at every departmental series of seminars, go to conferences and present as much as possible.
0: Throughout your career, you have spent a lot of time visiting other labs uh, as a professor. And so can you tell us a little bit about what labs you've visited and what are some of the benefits of spending time in other labs and learning from your colleagues,
1: it is exactly the learning part. It's fantastic. While I was visiting other laboratories, I also did research that I never thought I would do, and that expanded my horizons quite a lot. For example, in in Messina, I currently collaborate. Well, in the last few years, no, because of, of the plague. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I collaborated with my former, one of my former professors, on uh, Giovanna Valenti and another colleague. Giancarlo Consolo, on magnetostriction. That was a topic that I didn't know, and I became very passionate about it. And now it has become the excuse to start an entirely new topic for my group, which is the electromagnetomechanics. So problems in which mechanics and electromagnetism are coupled. So all these uh, magnetic properties and electric properties of solids, which is a lot of fun. In other visits, I learned that I was doing things wrong. For example, I gave a presentation in a visit at the OIST, the Okinawa Institute of uh, Science and Technology in Okinawa, when I was visiting Elliot Fried, who is a fantastic continuum mechanist. And he pointed out a thing that I was doing incorrectly, or if incorrectly, in a way, for my modeling of the Fung material. So there is this model by Professor Fung for biological materials that has been used a lot. And so there are ways in which it can be misunderstood. And so I I wrote a couple of papers about it. There were some fundamental problems that I need to address. I never had the time to do it yet, but (laughs) (laughs) that's something that we'll do at some point. And so it's always very important to visit other groups and to learn from other people. I had many of my students uh, visit other groups particularly in Europe. So I had people from my group going to the KTH in Stockholm to work with Christian Gasser, who is an authority in cardiovascular biomechanics. My student, Amira Metzadel who was doing damage modeling of soft tissues. Uh, my student, Kotai Bashlamun, went to Torino to visit Alfio. Uh, for growth remodeling problems and for the diffusivity uh, model. And my postdoc, Mosen Maleki also went to Torino to work with Alfio for a permeability problem. So I always try to give these chances to my students, like Walter did with me, like my professor Guido Rosa did with me, and that's actually what started my career. I went to visit Walter in Canada, and then uh, I ended up being here.
0: Are you aware of any funding that supports these types of exchange visits?
1: So there are many... For example, there is the Fulbright uh, for those who want to visit colleagues in the United States. I never applied for that, but there is that opportunity. For Japan, there is the JSPS, or the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science, which has very good grants for visiting professors, as well as postdoctoral fellows, as, by the way. At the University of Messina, for example, there was the university that had funding for visiting professors. So very often universities do have funding to host someone from abroad. In fact, in Messina, I taught a course. I taught a continuum mechanics course in 2017, and that was a lot of fun. It was the first time I taught continuum mechanics in Italian. That <laughs> <laughs> it was great. So, well, at this point, please let me remind our CSB audience that all the students, we have the visiting student grants, and those are fantastic opportunities. And in fact, both of my students who went to Europe, Amir and Kotaiba, they got CSB grants. So Please, CSB students, do apply for these grants. Sometimes we had years, in my 10 years of service, we had years in which nobody applied, and that was such a pity. Uh, Please do apply. We have these very good grants. There are fantastic opportunities to go visit other groups. And systematically, all the students, they got their grants, then submitted their reports, and they were enthusiastic about the opportunity that they they had. So please do apply, CSB students.
0: To end the episode, we have five rapid-fire questions for you, and please try and answer in one sentence or less. Will do. First question is, for someone who might be interested in continuum mechanics, is there a book or other reading material that you would recommend to them as a general guide to get started?
1: Very decent book to start from, Bonnet and Wood, 2008. That's a very good introduction. It's not particularly complete, but it's a good start if you have little bit of guts, you can jump to Marsden and use. That's a very complicated book, but it's a fantastic book. But Bonnet Wood would be a good
0: start. Question number two is most of your professional communication has probably been in English for many years now. However, English was not your first language and you speak Italian, of course, and also Japanese. So the question for you is, is do you find yourself in an English speaking scenario where you think there's a word in Italian or Japanese that better describes the situation and if so what's the word oh my
1: god yes uh, it happens sometimes it even happens with Sicilian there are words in Sicilian that I cannot really translate into Italian but one word that comes to my mind is the Japanese karai so karai is can be used as spicy but it's also it's also for uh, for salty if it's very salty so how do you say that it's uh, or or for the taste of wasabi Wasabi is karai but wasabi is not spicy it's karai. You cannot really say spicy.
0: Question number three. When searching your name online, two additional people came up. One was a singer and one was a painter. Do you (laughs) sing, paint, or both?
1: I don't paint, except when I was in uh, junior high. But yes, I do sing. As I mentioned, I was a singer in my band. And I know Federico Salvatore. But Federico Salvatore is the other way around. He's Federico by name. And he is a Napolitan singer. He's a fantastic artist. And in fact, my colleagues in Messina asked me to bring the guitar so that in the lunch break, one of them would jump on the desk of the professor in the, in our in our room, in our classroom and say, no, Salvatore Federico, we'll play Federico Salvatore. So that was
0: was fantastic. Question number four. Is there a fun fact you learn when completing your most recent degree in Greek and Roman studies that you can share with us?
1: The fact that sometimes my classmates were a little bit intimidated because there was this this bald guy, they looked much older than they were. And yet we had to do some part of the course together. <laughs> so that was, that was interesting,
0: yes. Okay, question number five. If you could bring one thing from Italy to Canada, what would it be?
1: Can it be a family? Then my family.
0: That
2: concludes our seventh episode with Dr. Salvatore Federico. Salvatore, thank you again for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun.
2: In our next episode, we will speak with Dr. Ryan Graham from the University of Ottawa about machine learning and NACOP, the North American Congress on Biomechanics, which will be held in Ottawa next summer. Remember, if you have a specific question for our guest, please feel free to email them to us so they can be integrated into the interview. Our email address is students at csb-scb.com.